Amen. That is the prayer, uh, is it not? Thank you, Rick. Um, that we would look at Jesus, not flippantly, not with cold hearts, but that our hearts this morning, this season, would be renewed with a love and a passion for Jesus to worship him, the one who came as our Savior, as a babe, and paid for our sins uh, on that cross. Thank you so much, uh, worship team, for that. Hey, uh, Merry Christmas. How are you? Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 is where we will get to in a minute, but I want to welcome you. I want to thank you for being here. Guests, uh, friends, family, those of you especially from out of town, welcome. Glad you're here as the Lees have a whole row over here. Good Okies from my stomping ground. Don't let these Longhorns tell you differently. Don't worry about it. Uh, so glad that you're here. And don't you love Christmas songs? I love the, the songs of this season, and I hope I, I invite you, I encourage you to join us again tomorrow night, yes, two days in a row, to come back for our Christmas Eve service tomorrow night at 5 o'clock uh, as we continue to sing and celebrate and look into the scripture. Um, tomorrow we'll be looking at John chapter 1 as we celebrate Jesus. Uh, this morning, though, I want to invite you to, to open to Matthew chapter 2. The last few weeks, we've been in the classic passage in Luke chapter 2, the classic traditional Christmas story. Today we turn to Matthew chapter 2 for another kind of classic traditional Christmas passage, and uh, this one about the wise men, or sometimes referred to as the magi, coming to Jesus. And as I studied this passage this week and uh, thought about it, I was reminded this week of the familiarity of this passage took me back actually to the third grade because uh, Christmas is not only the time uh, for family and for shopping and for gifts and all that stuff. Christmas is also the time for Christmas concerts, right? Anybody have a Christmas concert you attended so far? A few of you? Uh, well, when I was in the third grade, I was taking piano lessons, uh, not by my will, I might add, but because I was forced to take piano lessons. And for my third grade Christmas concert, the piece that I had to learn was based upon this passage here in Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men. Uh, and you, many of you have heard it, I'm sure, uh, we three kings of Orient are. Familiar with it? It's based upon Matthew chapter 2, and in the third grade, that was my Christmas concert piece that I performed in front of this gigantic living room full of family and friends. And some, I gotta, some of you, I, I, you want to hear it, don't you? I can see it in some of your eyes. You want to hear my piece, the only piece that I remember uh, from my piano lesson. So I will, if, if you must, if you insist. Uh, okay, I got, I got nothing up here. Help me out, Kyle. Okay, are you ready? I don't have the lyrics on the screen, but if you like, okay, just join right in, okay? Okay. 
thank you. I do. I, I do actually have one. I do actually have one more. That's what I remember of three years of piano, so part of the lesson of this uh, Christmas sermon, kids, is stick with it, okay? Uh, Don't give up, or when you're 40-plus years old, you'll embarrass yourself in front of everyone at church because the only song you know how to play uh, is like chopsticks. Well, here's here's the bad news about that song. The bad news about that song is that it has some uh, mistakes and it has some things that probably aren't accurate. We three kings of Orient are. Uh, the fact is, uh, according to Matthew chapter 2, they probably weren't kings. And secondly, there probably weren't just three of them, and uh, they probably didn't gather at the manger where Jesus was. Typically, in our manger scenes, the Christmas cards that we get, we see the wise men gathered right at the manger, right at the stable, along with the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph. But we'll find out through clues in our passage this morning that they probably came much later, not at the stable. So go ahead and open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 2, after that stirring rendition of that song. Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we're just going to kind of walk through this passage, and then I'm going to give you a couple summary lessons okay, from this passage. So Matthew chapter 2, the first couple verses, we'll see uh, who these guys were and where they came from. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, first thing to notice there is that uh, there's really no timeline. It just it simply says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The only time indicator is that King Herod is the king at this time that they come. But these wise men come after Jesus is born. Could have been months, probably more than months. Uh, but after Jesus is born, they come while King the Herod is king, and they're called wise men, or the Greek word, the word that is also common is magi. And these were the the elite of the day. These were the learned. These were the wise ones, thus the term wise men. We don't exactly know where they were from, but most guesses are they came from the Persian Babylonian era. And it's it's likely that uh, men of their knowledge of Babylonian customs had also heard their traditions Uh, given through Daniel and Ezekiel and others who had been in captivity with the Jews in Babylon. It's it's possible that the the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, had traveled to them, and so they were anticipating some type of Messiah based upon their knowledge of this Israelite religion. But they were the learned. They were the elite. They were the Harvard uh, graduates, uh, if you will. And they're coming, and what they end up doing, these elite, these knowledgeable, wise men, end up on their knees at the crib of a baby. And they worship him. Where do they come from? It says they came from the east. As I said, likely, likely Babylon or the Persian era, era of the time, which is uh, likely they're traveling not just uh, over yonder, 
uh, not just packing a bag this afternoon and heading to grandma and grandpa's, putting the food in the, in the back of the SUV, uh, packing some clothes, takes you a couple hours, but these guys likely are traveling 800 miles to get to Jerusalem and eventually to Bethlehem, not a small feat. Probably traveling with an entourage, probably traveling with cooks and, and guards and uh, other servants, not just three guys in this uh, venture to Jerusalem to see about the star and the king who had been born. And notice also that these guys are coming from the east. They're not coming from the Americas. They're not Westerners, they're Easterners. And they're going from the far east to the east to worship this Jewish-born baby, Jesus. The Christian faith doesn't start in the West. When I was uh, studying at the university, the prestigious university that I went to in Oklahoma, um, one of the requirements that I had in my major there was to, was to take a non-Western religion. Well, guess what? Christianity is a non-Western religion. Now, my university categorized it as a Western religion because that's where it's grown in recent centuries. But don't be misled. This story takes place in the East, and God is bringing people from the Far East to worship in, Jer in Jerusalem, the one King, the one Savior, the one Messiah over all nations. This Savior that we worship is not an American Savior. He's a savior of the world. And this first picture of guys from the east coming to worship Jesus is just a picture. It's a foretaste of the new kingdom that Jesus is establishing as he comes in his birth and through his ministry and through his death and resurrection. That the church will be multiracial, multi-ethnic. And so they come and they worship and they bow down. It's a foretaste. It's a fulfillment of places in the Old Testament, one of which being Psalm 86.9. Psalm 86.9 says this. There is none, or verses 8 and 9 say this. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. The wise men are a picture of that. The wise men are a fulfillment of that, that God is not working just through the, the nation of Israel, but that he is spanning the globe, a global God, one Savior for the entire world. Or as that famous New Testament verse will tell us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world. And here we see this picture of multi-ethnic people coming and being united before Jesus. We don't know much about this star, a miraculous star that guides them. The Bible doesn't make it its point to tell us about the star, just that the star appeared and that it guided them. They probably had some knowledge, again, as I said earlier, that there would be this king born in Israel from Daniel and others who had taught in Babylon. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And we don't have time to talk about Herod. He's known to most of us as Herod the Great, right? And uh, 
he didn't like this. Uh, it says here that he was troubled. Probably an understatement. This is a guy that uh, killed his own sons. And as we'll find out at the end, at the end of chapter 2, he's going to call for the death of Jesus for all uh, newborns, two and under. Another indication that uh, the wise men probably came at a later date because Herod asked the wise men when they saw this star and then by what they told them says, all right, let's go out and kill every child under two in and around Bethlehem. So Herod, not a, great guy, not a great guy, not a nice guy. If you travel to Israel today, you'll see the remains of the temple that Herod helped the Jews build. You'll, you can travel to the Herodium, where was this huge palace, this huge mansion that you can still see the remains of today. You can see this, this fort, this protected fort along uh, the sea called Masada, which they, uh, the Jews in 70 AD ended up hiding uh, trying to escape persecution. Massive architectural feats under Herod the Great. Here's what you ought to know too, though, but we have remains of Herod the Great's great work. We largely remember Herod the Great today because of his story in Jesus the Great. Yeah, there's some architectural ruins. There's some places that we can learn about Herod, but largely he is only infamous because of the story that goes along with the one that he so tried to pursue and do away with. Because he was threatened, he was the king, and one born king had come. So he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem probably because Herod was troubled. They were troubled when Herod was troubled. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Hey guys, chief priests, scribes, what about this? Where is the king of the Jews to be born? And the, as good scribes, they tell him the answer. Oh, that's easy. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem is the place where the Messiah will be born. So Herod now knows this. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, so he'd know about the age of the child. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. Now, what's something that's interesting here is that as they come, they knew, uh, hey, we. If the king's going to be born, we probably ought to go to Jerusalem. That's where you would find the king in Israel. Guess what? It wasn't. It wasn't in the prominent place. It wasn't in the place of power. It was in a backwater little town of Bethlehem that had been prophesied years ago. And notice also that as Herod finds this out and as he questions the chief priests and the scribes, we don't see any indication in this story that the religious guys, the guys should, that should know they did know the place of his birth, but the guys that should care make any effort to go to walk with the wise men five miles toward Bethlehem to check it out themselves. They are not interested, apparently. But the wise men are traveling 800 miles to investigate this, 800 miles to worship, as they say, and the scribes, the ones who should know best, 
don't seem to lift a finger or even travel five miles to go and check out the claim. Perhaps they were comfortable in their religiosity. Perhaps they were comfortable in their scriptural knowledge alone, but they didn't take the time. They didn't put forth the effort to go and seek for Jesus. They become cold. And that's why I think Rick's prayer this morning stood out to me because I can grow cold to Jesus. I can have some knowledge of the scriptures and yet still be cold to Jesus. We live in an area and a time where wonder kind of escapes us. I mean, what is it that is really going to surprise you and me? What's going to capture our wonder? I mean, we've got all sorts of information on screens right at our fingertips. We've got all the restaurants after church that we could enjoy. Hey, that was decent food. It's okay. You know, the Okies up in Oklahoma City are excited because they might get an Ikea. And I'm like, we've got Nebraska Furniture Mart. Ikea is so last decade. Like, I'm going to get excited about Ikea. We've got screens. We've got a $5 billion mile here. We've got the clothes we need. We've got the entertainment we want. We're bored surfing through all the things we have. Wonder is hard for me to find. And wonder for us may be hard to find this Christmas because we're familiar. Oh yeah, Jesus was born as a baby. No, my cold heart, no. Come and look at Jesus. Go the five miles. Check it out. Sit at his feet. Fall on your knees and worship. As the wise men go that way, the chief priests and the scribes Stay behind. And picking it up in verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And here we see how the wise men responded. They saw the star, they had this miraculous supernatural sign, but it wasn't enough. Because they still had to go and ask in Jerusalem, hey, where exactly is this going to be? And they're directed to Bethlehem. So they don't just need a star. They needed the word of God, the divine word, the word from the prophets to find the Christ. And so they go, based upon the word of God, they're responsive. They go and they look. And then verse 10 when they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, exceedingly. With great joy. Not only were they responsive, but they were joyful. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The author, Matthew, is telling us here that they rejoiced with joy. Last week, Dave talked about in the Greek, it's mega joy. Exceeding joy. They were responsive. They were joyful. And verse 11 And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. Here, uh, another indication that they're not at the stable. Where did they go? Not to the manger, but to a house. 
at this point, they are living in a house. And the word here is not baby, different word than Luke chapter 2, verse 8, baby. But now here he is referred to as the child. So they're in a house and he's a child, possibly as old as two, with Mary, his mother. And Joseph left off the page of scripture right here, forgotten. He's with Mary, his mother. And look, the humility, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. The wise men, the elite, the Harvard PhD guys fall on their knees and worship a baby. They're full of wonder. And not only do they fall on their knees and worship, but they're generous. They give of gifts. Then, opening their treasures, they offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is where the tradition comes that there's three kings or three people because there's three gifts. But just because there's three gifts doesn't mean there has to be three people. But gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and all the essential oil, and the people in the audience are thinking frankincense and oils. Yeah, I knew it. It's biblical. There it is. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And a lot of Bible teachers say that even these gifts that the wise men are bringing are signs of who this is that they're worshiping, that gold was the, the gift for a king. You would bring a king, not myrrh, but gold. So the gold represents Jesus' kingship. The frankincense is, is an oil. It is an oil that would, be, that would be anointed on priests. And so they're offering these wise men that they are worshiping the king, that they're worshiping the priest, but not only the priest, the one that, who would sacrifice himself as the sacrifice. And finally, myrrh. And as Jesus offered up his life, volunteered his death at the cross, what did his friends wrap him in? What did those women wrap him in? Claws and anointed his body with myrrh. The wise men are responsive, they're joyful, they're humble, and they're generous, bringing these gifts joyfully. As I thought about the joy, I was reminded of 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. We haven't seen the baby, we don't have the manger here to look in and and see Jesus, but Peter writes for you and me, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him, though You do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just a couple points of summary lessons here, okay? What do we gather from this? What do we learn from this? First of all, we see that Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. The learned are coming to him. They've got some wisdom. They're known as being wise men, but ultimately they are coming to the wise one. As Colossians 2 verse 3 says, in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, all of our wisdom is temporal and outdated. 
Jesus is eternal wisdom. The wisdom that you and I have, the wisdom that the, that the wise men had was temporal and it was outdated. It was incomplete. They knew some things. They saw a star. They thought they should head to the Holy Land, Jerusalem, but they were wrong. They needed scripture. They needed Jesus. They needed the ultimate wisdom. All worldly wisdom is partial and outdated. Think about it. Just even in the field that you may work in, okay, we have all sorts of different professionals out here. In the field that you work in, think about technology. What worked, what you were doing in your industry 20 years ago is probably not what you're doing in your industry today, is it? Oh, that's outmoded. The financial industry, in medicine, the way we practiced medicine 20 years ago, not the way we do it today. Most of the things, if you think about your industry, construction, education even, how you teach things, the wisdom, the knowledge has changed. The wisdom of God never changes. It's full in Jesus. It's complete in Jesus. You ever uh, began, those of you with young ones started trying to tutor your kids in math, and they say, no, that's not the way the teacher teaches it. They teach us to do it this way. Well, well, they did it like this. When I was in school, and it was good enough for us, it makes a lot more sense. They don't teach the same way. The wisdom is outdated. The food that we eat. 20 years ago, we were told, hey, get rid of the sugar. Have the artificial flavoring. And what happens 20 years later? Hey, the, the saccharin is going to kill you. Go back to the sugar. Wisdom changes. It changes with time. It changes with context. It's partial, outdated. Kids, hear me closely. It's partial. It's outdated. Just like your clothes. Kids, you've seen those pictures of your parents in high school, and you're like, what are you wearing? What have you done with your hair? Hey, that, that was the wisdom of the time. That's what, that's what was in. That's what everybody thought was cool. And guess what, kids? You think right now that your style is going to be cool in 20 years. Guess what? You're going to laugh at yourself in 20 years. You're going to think, what was I thinking? Why were my jeans that skinny? Who would ever do that? You know, Dad, why did you take that belt and wrap it around and have it, you know, be tied in a knot? What would you possibly be thinking? Why would you roll your jeans up at the bottom? Every piece of information and knowledge we have is partial. It's incomplete. And in Jesus, the fullness of wisdom comes. And so Paul will say this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Things that you think were right now will be found out to be wrong. The wise men were the wisest. And yet their wisdom was incomplete and it would be outdated. If you're looking for, if you're looking for wisdom, if you're looking for something to satisfy your soul, you don't 
You don't need to go to astrology. You don't need to go to Scientology. You don't need to go to self-help books. You don't need to go to the latest craze. What you need to go to is not the temporal, but the eternal. C.S. Lewis said, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And may we fall at the feet of Jesus like the wise men. No, we don't have it in ourselves. The wisest of us, the dumbest of us. We don't have enough in ourselves. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Secondly, not only is Jesus wisdom, but the conclusion, the response is worship. The response is not seeking. The response is not broad-mindedness to know where the Savior would come from. It's not even biblical knowledge, but the conclusion, the response is to worship. It's to say, Jesus, I am so cold. I am so weary of all the other things that seem to entice me, of all the things that want my wonder and, and, and capture my attention. But Holy Spirit, recapture my wonder of Jesus, and make me fall down and worship. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord, born in a manger, died on a cross, risen three days, and reigning at the right hand of the Father. So where's your heart this morning? Where's your heart this holiday season? You feel overlooked by God? You feel unused by God. You feel unqualified for God. Well, let me challenge you to do this. Go to Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph, the overlooked of the time, the unlearned of the time. A woman, a young woman, a poor woman, whom God chooses to be the mother of Jesus. Go to Nazareth, find Joseph, a carpenter, a simple guy. Jesus comes, not for the elite, but for the average, for the losers, for the outcast, for the hopeless, for the small. The story of Jesus is that Jesus has come to us He's come to shepherds, he's come to Mary, he's come to Joseph, and he comes to us. Maybe on the flip side, you're here this morning and you think you're sufficient without Jesus. And I would just encourage you to go to Bethlehem with the wise men and see that ultimately all human wisdom falls at the feet of Jesus. We don't have it. We don't have the wisdom we need. We don't have the hope that we need. We don't have the knowledge of life to give us hope. But we find it in Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him. Would you pray with me? And I want to ask you to go ahead and stand as we sing that carol this morning. O come, all ye faithful, O come, all ye faithless.
O come all ye weak, O come all ye hurting, O come all you doubters, and look at Jesus and adore him. Father God, we come to you this morning not because we have it together, because we don't. We come to you insufficient, without the wisdom we need, without the holiness we need, without hope, without forgiveness and the Savior that you've given us. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts this morning? Would you move in our hearts this week to recapture our wonder and to fall on our knees and worship the wise one? Fall on our knees and worship the Savior. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.